0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. I have uh, my good buddy Chris KP here in the studio with me. G'day, g'day, g'day. It's so good to be in. I know. It is good. You you seem shorter or something. I don't know. Your stature over (laughs) Zoom is more impressive.
1: Well, that's because I fill the screen,
0: you see. Uh, (laughs) In the absence of a frame, uh, you have to see the real me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a little bit sad. And uh, on the line, we have Dr. Jen. Good morning, Dr. Jen.
2: Good
0: morning, Dr. Shane. Lovely to see your face. Good to see you too. We've got Dr. Ewan. Good morning, sir. Good morning. And Gracie has come in all the way from Texas. How are you going, Gracie?
3: Hi, Dr. Shane. How are you?
0: I'm very well. Now, we're going to start off with some news, folks, and then we have uh, a couple of guests uh, a little bit later in the show. And then uh, towards the end of the show, Gracie is going to teach us all about the science behind tattoos, and I think she's got something like 342 of them or something herself. So, uh, Gracie, we might start with you with news. I hear there's some uh, very scary things happening in Texas.
3: Yes. So, a worm that's originally from Southeast Asia has invaded our kind of North Texas area, sort of the Dallas-Fort Worth area where I'm located. Um, and it's called a hammerhead flatworm. And they can be anywhere from 4 to 15 inches long. So oh. it could be anywhere from, like, elbow to fingertip length. Yep. So imagine that. Um, they eat earthworms, which are obviously really important for recycling nutrients into the soil. So that's why it, um, this is such an issue. Um, and also, if you try to kill it, don't cut it. Because it will regrow. So it has sort of that Hydra mythical creature effect going on where if you cut one of its heads off, it'll just regrow. Um, right. So the news article that I was reading basically recommended you put it in a sealable bag um, and, like, douse it with salt and citrus <laughs> oil and vinegar. Uh, and then you seal the bag and then you throw it away and you hope that it dissolves this creature.
0: My goodness. I think I've seen that film. It's got um, – what's the guy's name uh, out of Footloose? Um, Kevin called, Bacon? Yeah, Kevin Bacon. It was called Tremors. <laughs> I saw that film a few years back. It was like an 80s yes. crappy sci-fi. This sounds horrific, Gracie. Have you come across any of these uh, beasties yourself?
3: So actually, uh, I looked around my backyard for them specifically, and I haven't seen any yet. Right. Um, so I'm hoping it stays that way,
1: but we'll yep. see. I love Look, the idea that the, um, the, the, the remedies
0: recommended is a series of flavours and condiments. Yeah.
1: That's
3: right. I think, great. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I think I'd, I'd probably just bag it and microwave it personally. But, you know, everyone's different. Um, everyone's <laughs> going to have their, their own solutions. But, uh, well, that sounds like, you know, in Australia, we often tell Americans a lot of stories about things like drop bears and some of our really dangerous critters. But you've pretty much guaranteed I'm not going to Texas. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't want something wrapping around my leg like that. That's That sounds really disgusting. Uh, Dr. Ewan, what have you got for us? I'd
4: like to talk about colour and flight and birds. Cool. So we've known for a long time that um, basically black helps birds to fly. And so what's interesting, though, if you look at seabirds, uh, you'll see that many of them have this black colouration on their wings in particular. And so a study has just recently been published that looked at 324 species of seabird, and basically, you know, that that spans ospreys, gannets, um, gulls, all sorts of different types of birds. And what they found was that those birds that had uh, more black, essentially, so darker-coloured wings, tended to fly better. But more interestingly than that, what they then did was, in the past there's been studies that have done 3D printing of wings and tried to recreate or investigate this pattern of better flight for darker-coloured wings, and it's been sort of um, unequivocal, the results. Um, But what they've now done is they've actually taken real bird wings. So they took the the wings um, of a gannet. I presume this gannet was deceased. And then they stuffed these wings, so two different types of wings, one that was basically just all white and one that was dark. And then they put it in a a, a chamber with wind, obviously, and also what they did was expose it to heat, so I guess mimicking solar radiation and so forth. And what they found was that the darker color wings had about um, 20% less drag than the lighter-coloured wings. So, basically, a darker color wing is way more efficient than a lighter-coloured wing, which gives this evidence, basically, that having these dark wings is really, really beneficial. And so it makes sense when you think about it. Of course, we know that black absorbs heat. And if you're trying to fly a long way, being able to basically make use of that energy is a huge advantage. But what the researchers are really excited about is basically the application that this might have to things like drone technology and mm. planes and so forth. So they're now looking at how they can actually take essentially what birds have been doing for, for millions of years, essentially, in terms of, you know, using colour to their advantage... But actually start um, putting that into, into machinery and seeing whether that can actually increase the efficiency of flight of things like drones and so forth. So pretty interesting research.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And I just imagined, and, and I'm not, not making light of all the difficulties in the airline industry at the moment, but I'm imagining a, a strategy meeting on Monday with a whole lot of people going, <laughs> Let, let's just paint them all black. We've got nothing else to do. <laughs> 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 I think that would be keep you know keep people keeping their jobs and you know paint all the planes just paint them all black.
4: Wouldn't you know? it? Wouldn't it be cool if they painted all the planes like different birds, right? Like yeah. different species of birds. That would be cool. I, yeah. I would. I'd get aboard that.
0: Yeah, that would definitely be cool. I'd. I'd love that. That would be kind of um. Yeah, although it would might you know there's there's those stories of the the poor um. Meerkats at the Royal Children's Hospital getting scared shitless from the helicopter landings. I'm not sure what they would think of a, <laughs> a, gi- a giant albatross flying over them. It's
2: an eagle. It's an eagle.
0: <laughs> some some sentinels like, what do I do? Um, I just have no clue. Uh, Dr. Jen, what do you got for us?
2: Uh, I want to talk about fish brains because, you know, poor fish brains, goldfish gets such a a bad rap. We think that fish don't have uh, the most complex brains, but in fact, that's not true. Fish have very complex brains and have many of the same structures in their brains as we do. But one of the key differences, which actually count in the fish's favour, is that in humans, new neurons only grow in a very few specific areas once we become adults. So we're pretty much stuck with our brains, but that's not the case at all for fish or amphibians or reptiles. They can have much more, um, you know, broad-scale growth in their brains even once Mm. they become adults. And we know that fish brains tend to reflect at least somewhat the complexity of the habitat that they live in, or at least we've known that for lab fish. So if you look at fish that are living in a lab, they tend to have smaller brains compared with fish of the same age and and species that are living in the wild. And research in the past has shown that if you make the lab environment more complex, then you can actually encourage growth in fish brains. But We didn't know if that actually happened in the wild and whether that was just kind of an artefact of being a lab animal or whether that's actually reflective of the brain responding to to need, I guess, in the environment. And there's a research that's just come out this week that studied trout in Ontario, looked at them, um, trout living in a couple of different lakes across multiple seasons. And what we know about these trout is that they don't like warm water. So in summer, they tend to stay in deep water. But in winter, they come up to the shallow water near the shore, which is a much more complex environment. There's much more going on than just being out in open water in a deep lake. And they found that in individual fish, brain size actually changes relative to body size. It gets bigger in winter, and then the brains get relatively smaller in summer. So it appears like living in a more complex, demanding environment, actually boosted the brain growth of an individual fish. So they're growing new neurons because they need to respond to more, more predators, more decisions to make, which I just think is wild. So then the next step was to look at the brain sizes of rainbow trout that had escaped from a fish farm in Canada. So these fish escaped from a farm and they went and lived in the, in the wild in a lake and they compared the brain sizes of the fish that were still in a farm with those that had managed to escape and break free into the wild. And the brains of the escaped trout were 15% heavier Relative to body size, compared with the captive fish, and there was no change in the heart, no change in anything else. It was just a change in the brain, and I think that's incredible. And of course, your brain is hugely expensive to mm. run and to maintain, so it makes sense you only invest in extra neurons when you need them to help you survive. And if there's times in your life that you don't need extra brain capacity, you just let them wither away, and your brain is less, you know, less, um, less costly to run. So. I'm thinking, how can we relate this to humans? Surely, you know, there are times I need less brain power, and I can just let my brain wither a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I need it again, I can just yeah. throw them back, right? Surely we can develop this technology. A fish can do it.
0: Yep. Your your brain is hugely expensive to run, Jen. We need to do, <laughs> we need to mm. do something about it. Well, I just think it's a, it's another way we can describe the need to maintain and and keep the Great Barrier Reef going strong, because that's all all the smart fish are there, right? I mean, yep. you know, oh, yeah. there's other areas that where the dumb fish lurk, but the Great Barrier <laughs> Reef, with its level of complexity, is where all the smart fish go. Where they come it. from? I
2: mean, it's just it's just another beautiful example of evolution. Yeah. You know, when you need it, you can develop it, and when you don't need it, there's no need to have a really big, expensive brain. I think it's yep. super cool. It's fascinating. But also, it-
4: it also shows why zoos expend so much time trying to keep animals occupied and interested. Exactly. So you know they've they've shown with Tassie devils, I think it is that over generations in captivity, their brain size goes reduces. Yeah. So yeah, it just, just shows again the importance of being occupied and interested about things, right? So. Yeah.
1: Super yep. cool stuff. Chris KP. Well, I'm glad to hear about trout because I've got a trout story too. In fact, it is actually a trout brain story in its own way. Um, but let me go very slightly sideways. You know that we we can track, um, you know, lots of things actually in wastewater. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most recently and topically, we've been tracking uh, COVID particles in, uh, in in wastewater. Well, it turns out that it, pretty much anything we do that ends up in wastewater can tell us about, you know, what we've been up to. But it can also have an impact. So there's a bunch of researchers led by research such as at the uh, Czech University of Life Sciences in Prague, who were looking at the down, the, the, the downstream effects of methamphetamines. Yeah. So, and what they found is that if there are humans taking meth somewhere, that will end up in the water, yep. and it will therefore, or in most cases, end up in the river systems. So the question is, well, does that actually do anything, or is it just one of, And the answer is yes, it does stuff. So basically they got some brown trout, and they... Uh, they uh, th- yeah, that had been exposed to water with, uh, with meth in it, uh, you know, for a period of time. And then they put them in water that had an option. They could go down two paths, the meth path or the north meth path. And they went down the meth path as a rule of thumb. Now, it's tempting to say, "Oh my God, they've got an addiction, yep. um, which is not really what it looks like. Um, it's kind of not the same as that, but it was their preference to go that way. Mm. The other thing they found is that if they got those same fish that had this meth preference and put them in non-meth water, um, then they would basically just they were, they were much less active than fish that hadn't been exposed to meth and went into the, the non-meth water. Um, and they, they interpreted this as being the fish were actually quite stressed they weren't comfortable weren't happy at that time they'd suddenly given up this thing that they'd become you know used to having around them um, that's one of the big risks. Of course, they're then saying, "Well, that's no good because if this is changing their behaviour, if it's upsetting them, or it's drifting them into a particular area, a particular yep. region, then there's there's risk of predation, there's risk yep. of not eating properly." Um, I wonder now about brains too. I wonder what's going <laughs> on inside their little scones. Um, uh, having heard well, that story, happy. well, they maybe they maybe they're happy, but maybe they're yeah. not. I mean, I don't
0: know. This is the problem. Depends when they get their we're, next, we're, um, we're mucking around. With <laughs> <laughs>
1: maybe, yeah, and that's the problem. They know where to go. But the the interesting thing for me though that, and it kind of is obvious when you think about it, but towards the end of the article I was reading, they made a point of saying that, okay, yeah, there's, there's this study and this is a thing to think about, but there's probably as much or bigger risk just from normal over-the-counter pharmaceuticals or prescription yep. drugs. Yep. This stuff gets flushed into the water Shampoo. all the time too. Shampoo <laughs> as well. So what we... Yep. <laughs> What we don't want is meth fish with great hair. Um, there are no winners in that scenario. But, yeah, so, yeah, downfield effects of, um, of, uh, of illicit drugs and illegal uh, and drugs can have an effect on at least brown trout.
0: Yeah, I, I just imagine these fish conversations going on. You know, we know they communicate around like, look, trust, mm-hmm. trust me, swim this way. Yeah.
4: Um, <laughs> yeah,
0: but leave your credit card at home.
4: <laughs> I'm saying a B-grade <laughs> horror movie that combines the method addicted fish with the worms from uh, Gracie's story.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and ones that have developed much larger brains from Jen's story. <laughs> That's right. So I, I,
2: want... I actually saw a horror movie like that when I was in Thailand in the late 90s. <laughs> um, we, went to a, we went to a movie and, of course, I couldn't understand a word because it was all in Thai, but that was essentially the story that these drug traffickers had lost drugs in the middle of the forest and it ended up in the waterways and you end up with all these horror animals that had become um, completely disfigured and, and crazed by taking on all these all these drugs. It was a really high-quality horror movie in Thai. Love it great. it is.
0: Well, you know, we love those sorts of films. I mean, you know, Deep Blue Sea, Samuel L. Jackson, you know, making the sharks smarter. It's just the sort of stuff we need to be working on. I mean, look at the success of vaccines when we put money in. We could do this. We could, we could make sharks that type. I think it's it's going to happen. The tweet, you would love love that. It's, it's <laughs>
2: endless, will. Shane. The possibilities are endless.
0: They're endless. Well, thanks, team. We're going to take a break now, folks. And uh, when we come back, we're going to be speaking with Professor Alison Keighley from RMIT University about their amazing new space industry hub. So hang in there. You're listening to 3RRR. We'll be back shortly. Triple R. Welcome back everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RR. In the studio virtually, I should say with us now is Professor Alison Kelly. She is the research director of Program 2 of the Advanced Satellite Systems Sensors and Intelligence Group at in, in Geospatial Sciences in the School of Science at RMIT University. I know I've forgotten a million things that you do, Alison, but welcome to Triple R. How are you going? Ah, thanks very much
5: Shane. Lovely to be here.
0: It's great to talk to you. Now, I saw just recently the announcement, a really exciting announcement from RMIT with regards to your new space industry hub. Now, obviously, a lot of money going in there, but before we get on to the hub itself, can you just give us a bit of a lowdown of what sort of space work you're doing there at RMIT? We've spoken to a couple of your colleagues over the last couple of years, but there's a lot more going on, I think, that most people realize in terms of space tech and so forth.
5: Yeah, you know, the whole, the whole space area, Shane, has really kind of experienced a, a, a kind of growth due to the fact that this, the possibility of traveling into space is, is one that people are kind of really seeing as a clear possibility. Mm. And so uh, at RMIT and some of the other universities in Victoria as well, we're clearly focusing on um, what, are, what, are, what are the benefits for society? How do we create sustainability in space? you know, build satellites and space sensors that, that live longer lives so we're not leaving a big footprint up there. Yep. And then the information that's being created by these, these satellites and space sensors, how do we use them here on Earth? So the geospatial domain, emergency response, agriculture, transport, smart cities, all of these things are kind of exciting opportunities for us to build on, and, and RMIT is well-placed. To, to do that across many domains in engineering and science.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny. I remember I, I almost went to RMIT for my undergrad. I went and spoke to some people there about doing aeronautical engineering and I was very close at the time. Then I went and spoke to some aeronautical engineers who were working, um, I think it was at Astor Aeronautics or something under the Westgate and they seemed a bit bored and I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. But anyway, it was uh, it was an exciting area. But of course, back then and, you know, we, some of the listeners will be aware it was quite a while back, um, we, we didn't have as much of this this stuff going on, and you know, space for Australia was limited to, I think, the the geo satellites that the Bureau of Meteorology had access to. But, but we're doing a lot more now, aren't we? I mean, how many how many satellites? I'm not sure if you know the answer to this, but how many satellites does Australia sort of own, control, manage? Um,
5: Australia's industry in this area is we, we're currently new to this area, mm-hmm. and we're we, we're looking at piggybacking on the maturity of launches that are undertaken in other areas. So we do have a number of um, SMEs who are kind of small companies that are starting to put launches. We've got universities that have built satellites and put them into space. And so our role in terms of getting into the space, you know, the exciting space business is to collaborate, to collaborate with NASA, collaborate with European Space Agency, Build our pathways to to gaining access to experience, but but kind of developing our own sovereign abilities as well.
0: Very cool. Now, Chris has a question for you too. I do. I'm
5: just. I'm wondering,
0: Alison. Sorry, Chris, go again.
1: Oh, thank you. Oh, that's so much better. <laughs> um, at least for me, uh, I, I'm wondering. So, I, I understand as you're saying that you know that Australia's reasonably new in the in the area, if you like. But in the in the industry globally, what? What do we need to do next? What's the next big thing? We know we have, we have telecommunications satellites. We have weather satellites. Um, we're looking at, at exploration, etc. But what is the, the big, fat field? I'm looking for what's the big, fat field that, that Australia can look to to contribute significantly in or lead in?
5: Yeah, great, great question, Chris. And, and I guess there are two, two answers I can give you. I think one area is protecting what we have in space. So how do we build the the technology that allows us to protect it Uh so that we can use it across all the areas that we're using it now? So, for example, GPS is a good example. Everybody uses GPS and we want to make sure that we're able to continue using that for all the things, banking, electricity, Mm. all of the things that we use it for. So protection is one area. I think the other areas we're seeing a lot of very small satellites now. Going up in the thousands, SpaceX are doing this, you know. Wow. And we want to be able to build intelligence. That, that means we can use all this data more intelligently. So you'll hear things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and all of these computational techniques coming coming out as being things we've used for years. But now we want to push it into the space domain and that's what makes it really exciting.
0: Yeah. Now, the I know the Victorian government's given you guys a million dollars. There's a lot of other investments as well. Tell us about the hub. What's the space industry hub going to be doing at RMIT?
5: Well, the space industry hub is, is Shane, all about collaboration. Let's pull the brilliant academics into a space with the industry with the government challenges, let's put all of these people in the same room and let's build an ecosystem that could deliver on all the things I'm talking about. What? So this is what the hub is designed to do. It's collaborative, it's outward facing, it wants to help Australia connect to international space missions and we want to also focus on how do we inspire the next generation of young people to see space as a career path for them, what's the industry that's going to support them? Let's mm. build that together.
0: Yeah, I, I suppose one of the things that a lot of people don't realise is just how much Australia spends on space in a given year. And my my vague recollection of this is it's in the tens of billions sort of range. Is that is, that, is that, am I remembering that correctly?
5: Yeah, so there's a lot of money being spent um, on, on things, that not, not just the space, but the space enablement mm. as well. And I think a good number to focus on, chain would be where this growth is going. So, you know, in 2018, we we're looking at a space sector that was valued at about $4 billion. Okay. And we're looking at that growing to about $12 billion in, in 2030. But that's matched by, you know, 10,000 jobs going to 30,000 jobs. And we all want to be part of growing, growing that, um,
0: it, it's interesting to me, I mean one of the things that I, I suppose we don't think about a lot, but you mentioned agriculture earlier, and there's so much in terms of uh, you know public perception of farms just i don't know people think tractors and a few hoses and, and good to go but but in terms of water water usage, in terms of humidity and all the different conditions, salinity, so many aspects that make you know especially larger scale farming viable. Um, the, the space technologies are, are intricately involved in that as as I understand it now, aren't they?
5: Yeah, so that that that's kind of you know current state of the art and how do we how do we use the imaging technologies from space combined with ground based sensors? But more importantly now is how do we secure Our food systems, you know, remote communities or agricultural communities, how do we connect them up to urban centers so we can trace our food from, you know, the start to where it ends up? All of these things now being enabled by communication satellites that are, are, are ubiquitous across global extents.
0: Mm. Now, there's obviously some pretty strong industry links there between the hub and an RMIT, you know, and, and industry. What, what about students in terms of teaching? I mean, what sort of, are there new programs and courses coming online? Because I know when I went to university, and there wasn't a there wasn't a course on CubeSats or a, you know a course on optimum launch windows or any of the things that are needed with regards to this sort of space stuff. I mean, that was available in the US, and you know, and I'm sure it was available in Russia and and, and the European Union, but it wasn't available here in australia as far as i know um is there stuff coming online at rmit in that range
5: yeah we we're we're really um you know latching on to this and trying to service this this growing community so we're embarking on the whole science reimagined activity let's build programs the space science program that's been around for a couple of years now the space engineering degree that's coming on next week we we are revisiting this in a truly inspired way so that so that young people can see clear pathways through universities to jobs in the future in the space industries in Australia.
0: Yeah. I think there's an element there too of storytelling that a lot of people um, haven't heard. I mean, one one of the ones that I love is the fact that and you're probably aware of this, but you know, the Hubble Space Telescope for people listening at the moment is not sending back data. There's there's some problems there. And and of course, sadly, ten years ago, I think it was ten years ago now, we, we stopped launching space shuttles, which means we can't we can't you know do any maintenance on we we can do remote maintenance with regards to you know switching over to backup systems and so forth but we can't do that sort of you know get a couple of astronauts to do a an eva and just tinker with it you know tinker with the the telescope and get it right we don't have that capability anymore and things change so i mean i think getting students and, and everyone to hear some of those stories about some of these amazing successes a telescope 40 years old you know just told us everything about the universe we want to know um, comes from this industry, right? I mean, there's a lot to know there.
5: Yeah, and if you imagine in a future where we're building networks in space, massive Mm. networks, small satellites that are observing everything from how the the universe is expanding to to kind of trying to do collision avoidance from things that are about yeah. one centimetre in size hurtling around. You know, these are really complex fields for students to really get involved in and, and be part of that future.
0: Yeah. Well, look, Alison, it's great talking to you about this. Uh, good luck with the establishment of this new space industry hub at RMIT. It's great that you guys got all the funding for it. And I think, um, you know, it's fantastic when we see these points of connectivity between industry and academics and and students and so forth that bring it all together because often that's where the you know the the problems occur with those disconnects and historically universities haven't been huge at least in australia anyway on um, connectivity with industry so it's good to see that it's being pushed forward so so powerfully um congratulations thanks for chatting to us and and we'll talk to you again maybe sometime in the future Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Chris. Lovely to talk to you. See Thanks ya. so much, folks. That was professors, Professor Alison Keeley uh, from RMIT University. We're going to take a break and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest for today. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein the Go Go on 3 Triple I'm Dr Shane and we have on the line now Professor Mark Kumsicle. He is from the Department of Biochemistry and Genetics at La Trobe University.
6: Welcome, Mark. Thanks for taking a moment out from your family holiday to chat to us. Good morning, and yeah, thank you for for having me. It's uh, lovely to be on the show.
0: Oh, look, it's great to talk to you, especially about the, the topic that uh, you've been working on, because look, it's it's hard to go anywhere at the moment without pe- people talking about COVID, but what I suspect most people haven't heard of is the work that's been going on with our large synchrotron here in Melbourne, which is out, out near Monash University there in Clayton, and and the, the the sort of scenario that some people have been experiencing, quite a large number actually worldwide, which is long COVID. So, what have you been doing there, Mark? Because this this seems like these things seem like a fair way apart. But uh, obviously, the ability to do the sort of imaging that you can at the synchrotron is pretty important.
6: Yes. So, um, with you know the 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 latest COVID numbers worldwide being you know pretty significant, we've we've gone past one hundred and eighty million cases, and mm-hmm. um, so that's that's a lot of people. And for one of the things we were thinking about is, whilst we're all busy fighting the the fires of the current outbreaks, whether or not that's you know in in Europe or or in Southeast Asia or now in in New South Wales, a key question for us really was, well, what what happens later? At the moment, we're all in this emergency phase. We got to get on top of things, but uh, w- what happens long term? Are there long term repercussions for you know those? what will likely be, you know, a couple couple of more million people who'll have it. Mm. Um, what does that mean for them later down the track? Is everybody going to be able after a, a serious bout of COVID to go back to normal? Or do we have to think about, well maybe maybe they're not? Yep. And um and this is this is something we've I've thought about um particularly because um there is a, a kind of uh, an analogy there that um, relates to pneumonia. So when I was a, when I was a teenager, I had pneumonia when I grew up, a really nasty round of pneumonia. So that took me out for two months. And um, then uh, I went to see my, my GP for the checkup and he said, yeah, so in, in, you know, in two months, can you please go and have a chest x-ray? And I thought, oh, really? Hmm. Oh, why is that? And he said, well, you, you might have starring on your lung from, from pneumonia. And, um, and it was that was the first time I ever heard about this. I mean, you're not a teenager,
2: hmm.
6: not yeah. really into biomedicine at the time, yep, uh, in any serious way. And it was just an eye opener I thought, "What do you mean scarring on my lungs?" And um, I've never, I never forgot that. And it was all fine. I went and had a chest X-ray, and it was all good. But um, and looking at what what we were thinking of, of what we were really. Interested about with COVID is that there's been you know severe COVID has been shown to really affect the lung and cause long-term lung caused lung damage. Yep. And um, then for me the question was, well, oh, is this a bit like what what I had with pneumonia? Do we do we need to worry about this? Is something that happens that that stays with us because of scarring and other things? And so so we started looking into this and. um, and yeah, so I guess the segue to the synchrotron is because we or my team is really interested in the molecules that control all these kind of processes. So what in terms of what happens when COVID meets lung tissue, then what you get is, is really you get this kind of molecular dance. Molecules from the virus meet molecules from you know us and in particular the lung. And in what they and then you get, you know, because this is a bit like burglary, you know. Someone mm. goes into the house, the alarm goes, then someone calls the cops, and so, you know, then the, the the host defense comes in and um and lots of things happen. And what we were interested in what exactly happens there, because one of the problems is if you if you think about you want to, you know, cure a disease or intervene in something that's you know not healthy, you want to design a drug, if you don't know what it looks like and how it works, you have absolutely no chance. And, um, and so what my lab specializes in, we make molecules from you know, interesting things, mostly viruses, and then molecules from the host. And then we image them at the synchrotron. Mm. And, um, and this, this works really well because we have access to these really high-intense X-rays that are provided there. And then that means we can see in really atomic detail what happens. And then we can observe this, what I call the, the dance of the molecules, and in this particular case, it's kind of this this COVID, you know, lung tissue dance that then determines what happens in the lungs. So,
0: um, Mark, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you. Have you got a scenario where you're able to get some sort of temporal uh, information as well? Like, are you, are you using actual lung tissue? With with the COVID sort of infection happening in real time, or are these sort of sections of time um, where the tissue has been exposed for a certain amounts of time that you're looking at separately, how do you, how do you do that in the synchrotron?
6: Oh, so it would be lovely if we could do this with tissue, but um, we don't really get the the resolution that we are interested in. We want to really see in atomic detail what happens, mm. and um, that means we have to. Uh, take a shortcut and that means we need to work with isolated molecules and so we have um, a molecule from covid which is called the e-protein which stands for envelope and um, that's one of the you know handful of molecules of proteins in covid that you know that we know about that is involved in pathogenesis and in the disease and then we looked at what what is important in the lung and um one of the things that uh, was noticed is that um, there's a particular feature of lung tissue that um, plays a role there, which is referred to as what's called polarity. And so I need to explain that a little bit. So if you, if you think about lung tissue, lung tissue kind of um, consists of lots of cells that are sticking together. Mm -hmm. And, um, and if you think about the to- the type of environment that the lung tissue operates in you have the inside of the lung which is full of air which is a very particular type of environment and then you have the backside which connects to you know all the blood vessels and everything else inside the actual body and so the two environments are absolutely totally different like like night n- night and day and um and that but this has to be the the lung cells have to interface with two with both of these environments and work with them, and that means the two ends can't be the same. and um, And this kind of phenomenon, when one side of the cell is very different from the other, is called polarity. Right. So it's a bit like you know a magnet, you know the north pole and the south pole. So it's still the same piece of metal, but the two have actually very different properties. Hmm. And um and so we have this complicated molecular machinery that controls how you get polarity. And it turns out that is really important that machinery because COVID hijacks that machinery when it enters the lung cells, and that is when it all goes pear shaped.
1: Right. I'm I'm wondering um, if if that so, well, kind what of what
6: does that look when COVID hijacks it.
1: So I'm wondering if, if that kind of effect given that, you know, lungs are lungs, um, and, you know, does that kind of affect, is that seen with other, I mean, obviously, you know, that pneumonia is one, but is that a risk that you always have because of the nature of the uh, of the lung tissue? Is that always a disease risk? And to what extent have other um, diseases, a la pneumonia, been studied using the same kind of scanning technology?
6: Um, so this is something that has been seen with other infections. So we knew about this Um, from the SARS outbreak in 2004. So because SARS and COVID are Mm -hmm. highly related, and it became apparent that um, there might be something like this. So this um, this was not all out of the blue. There was a reasonable amount of evidence that pointed that this might be important, but no one had really looked into it in the context of COVID. And with SARS, the numbers were very small compared to, you know, they were... mean still had a significant health impact Mm. and uh and a public health impact in particular in places like taiwan and china but um but compared to what is a global pandemic that was a more localized event Mm. and um and so uh, not a lot was followed up afterwards and so this is what we were doing um so in terms of other uh, um in terms of the imaging it's um the the challenge there is that this this hijacking process is caused by um, one protein from, from COVID. And so this is a very special protein because this is only found in these type of coronaviruses. So it's not um, a universal thing. Other viruses don't have this protein. But um, biology is very funny. It's kind of, you know, um, once something works,
2: mm-hmm.
6: uh, other viruses mm-hmm. will find ways to kind yeah, of mimic sure. it. And so there actually are quite a lot of other viruses that um, hijack um, similar polarity control systems, not in the same way and not using the same molecules, but the outcome is kind of similar. And what Mm. really what the viruses want to achieve is they want to create an environment where they can make more virus, and they can ultimately take over the entire host and Mm, cause what's called a systemic infection. You know, you don't just want a little bit of virus in the lung. You want it everywhere. So you can make loads of virus because the virus really doesn't care. The virus only exists to make more virus. Mm. That's the sole purpose.
0: Yeah. Well, Mark, look, thanks so much for chatting to us. It's good to see that the synchrotron is being used for this um, long COVID, something that we haven't heard a huge amount about yet. But um, knowing a few people who've been suffering from this over the last year, it is uh, going to be a major issue. And I think anyone who dismisses any chronic disease uh, really is, is not uh, not well versed in just how life changing these can be. So, uh, good luck with that ongoing work. Enjoy the remainder of your holiday and um, make sure you get back to work real soon to
6: sort out these COVID problems for us. Oh, thank you very much. And yeah, well, I'll be, I'll, I'll be back again in a few days. So, <laughs> it, it, there's no, no rest for the weekend.
0: <laughs> <laughs> good, good to hear in some sense. Thanks so much, Mark. Uh, thanks thank for you talking very to much. us today.
6: Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Folks,
0: we're going to take a break now for uh, some important station announcements. And when we come back, I think uh, Gracie from Texas is going to talk all about tattoos, the science of tattoos. Um, uh, Ow. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. There could be some needlework involved. Yes. Well, (laughs) we'll try and minimize that for those of you who are needle phobic, uh, which I think should be basically everyone (laughs) (laughs) to some extent. Uh, Back in a moment, folks. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. Now on the line with us is Gracie from Texas. She is one of the better communicators that we've found in the U.S. Gracie, you still there?
3: Yes, that's a high compliment coming from you. Appreciate
0: it. <laughs> well, or, or or a real slight against everyone in the U.S. Uh, either way, no, there's lots of, there's we actually have a lot of good friends on this show not that anymore. Are, are great communicators from the U.S. Yeah, not anymore. They're all gone. Um, now you're going to tell us a bit about tattoos and the science behind tattoos, and I, I think this is fascinating. So jump right in.
3: Yeah. So tattoos have been around for thousands of years. Years And today, about one in three Americans have tattoos. Um, mm-hmm. I couldn't find any updated stats for Australia, but I bet it's pretty similar, I'm guessing. Yep. Um, and I'm also one of those three Americans, or one of those one in three, Uh, and I think I have about seven tattoos unless I'm forgetting any, and then that also kind of (laughs) depends on how you define them because I actually have a half sleeve, which is from my shoulder to my elbow, that took three or four different sessions, and each session was several hours. Um, So I guess you could say I have somewhere between seven and ten depending on how you define that.
0: Right. Um, I I like the fact that you're not sure. It's kind of like some of them happened when you're asleep or inebriated.
1: (laughs) That's one of my favorite thought exercises to say (laughs) to people, you know, your your partner, are you sure –
0: they don't have any tattoos. Are
1: you really <laughs> sure? <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah. Okay. So somewhere between 7 and 25 you've got, Gracie. Cool.
3: Yeah. There we yeah. go. Okay. Um, and so I honestly really hadn't thought much about the science behind them until recently. So I was really excited to kind of dig into this. So overall, we'll kind of talk about how tattoo guns work, uh, what ink is made out of, um, how your body responds to getting a tattoo, and then also how tattoo removal works if we have time at the end we'll talk a little yep. bit about that too okay so almost the anti tattoo part of the segment at the end there <laughs> yeah. laser removal but if we get there um, and most people kind of tend to think that getting a tattoo is like getting a vaccination but like a lot worse right that's kind of like the image that people have in their heads i feel like um or at least the image that I did. Uh, But tattoo needles actually don't work anything like the needles used in vaccinations. So vaccination needles, uh, there's typically like one hollow tube and then the healthcare worker injects the fluid down through the tube into your arm. Right. Um, But tattoo ink actually isn't injected down through a needle. Instead the tattoo needle has basically three sharp points at the end of it for fine lines. And then they can have more, uh, fine point at the end for shading um, and the tattoo artist just dips the tip into the little ink well mm-hmm. and the ink is held at the tip kind of suspended there between all those sharp points so it's not really actually like anything's being injected down through the needle it's just kind of being held there at the tip
4: okay
3: yeah and then also another main difference between tattoo needles and uh kind of getting a vaccination is that uh like flu shots and the covid vaccine go all the way into your muscle. Um, Mm -hmm. But tattoo needles uh, just pierce your skin um, through the epidermis, which is the top layer of the skin and down into the dermis, which is kind of that second layer. Um, And our epidermis, the outer layer of skin sheds about 40,000 cells an hour. Um, So it it regenerates itself uh, pretty often. But the dermis um, is kind of where that tattoo sits. In that second layer, so that it that's how it stays and doesn't kind of slough off after a certain period of time,
0: yeah. That's interesting. That was one of the things I always wondered was why it is they don't so that I know they fade over a very protracted period of time and you know, some of them change shape due to age. And I've made some recommendations to Chris KP because he still wants to get a pirate ship. And I said, well, it may look like a pirate ship now, but in 20 yeah. years it's going to look like a dinghy. Yeah, so, you yes, know, just be yes, careful. Yes. But, yeah, I, 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 I wasn't aware of have... exactly where they went.
1: Yeah, so I, th- I think it's a pity that they don't go in the dermis because then you can just change them more frequently. Um, but <laughs> yeah. it would also mean you'd get, you'd get potentially multicoloured dust in your house. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so actually uh, 30% of the ink, if you picture it as the ink... Uh, total kind of being a hundred percent 30 percent doesn't quite make it all the way into the dermis and it actually stays in the epidermis so if you see somebody with a fresh tattoo and it looks like super shiny and then it actually will peel off in two to three weeks that's actually the epidermis so that's the 30 percent of the ink that didn't make it quite to that dermis layer yeah and and then that remains you know 70 percent of the ink uh gets absorbed into the dermis um Yeah. And then, so how a little bit more about how the tattoo gun actually works. So, when the needle reaches the dermis and retracts, and it can do this thousands of times per minute, but every time the needle retracts, you now have a space where that needle was, Mm -hmm. essentially creating a vacuum that Mm. sucks the ink into the hole that was left by the needle. So it, it's essentially sucking the ink into your skin. And it's it's through a method called capillary action. So it's the same thing that pulls liquid up a straw. So if you notice, when you put a straw into your cup and a little bit of water is pulled up the, to the bottom of the straw before you even take a sip. Um, and this is also kind of the same, the same group of forces that helps trees kind of pull up water into their roots. Mm. Um, so basically capillary action is what's actually pulling the ink into your dirt. Through those forces. Yeah.
0: I've always found that magical. I've Mm. tried to explain to my kids, like when they have a little juice box or something and it has the bendy straw, Mm. that, you know, sooner or later (laughs) it's going to leak. Because of capillary action, but it's kind of when you're telling an eight year old about capillary actions, I sometimes think I might be better just say, look, there's this magic force <laughs> that, uh, that pulls the juice up out of the straw that's going to end up on the carpet. The juice fairy. The juice fairy will pull the juice, yeah. But uh, yeah, wow, that's interesting. I, yes. I didn't know that, yeah. Okay.
3: Yeah, and actually uh, you want to increase that capillary action as much as possible in order to get as much ink into the dermis as possible because otherwise that's going to be more ink staying in your epidermis that will peel off later and your tattoo will look really faded. Um, And so there are a few ways to increase this capillary action. One way that tattoo artists can easily kind of control is by reducing the surface tension, um, which can basically be done by making the skin soft by putting moisturizer on the skin like 30 to 40 minutes before the tattoo. Mm. And so basically, what's happening is the oil and the moisturizer essentially helps break up the tattoo ink and kind of allows it to get sucked into that space more so. And so tattoo artists will usually put moisturizer on the skin like 30 to 40 minutes before starting just to kind of help with this. Um, And another thing that tattoo artists can control is the angle of the needle. So if you go in at 90 degrees, so completely perpendicular, maybe say to the arm, Uh, if you're thinking about it in your mind, um, you're going to get a lot of bounce and not much ink is going to go into the dermis. So it's actually better to go in closer to like a 45-degree angle because it's going to create a more kind of elliptical-shaped space for the ink to go into, so more surface area, as opposed to if you go in at a 90-degree angle, the space will be more circular and will have less surface area.
0: I love this information. I mean, when I get Mm -hmm. my next or first tattoo, Mm -hmm. sorry, I've just exposed myself there as being so sad. Clean skin. Clean skin. (laughs) <laughs> if someone's going in at 90 degrees, going to be like, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, shouldn't you be at 45? Um, and they'll look at me like, but you have no tattoos. How the hell could you know that? So, yeah.
3: <laughs> science. Science. Science, science.
0: science. yeah. Yeah. Okay. And
3: then so moving on to uh, kind of the actual ink itself. So the ink can be organic or inorganic. Um, and so organic inks have a lot of like carbon and hydrogen atoms um, and come from like things like plants and insects. Um, and inorganic ink has... Uh, things like salts and minerals and metal oxides um, and typically rather uh, or sorry typically for inorganic it's going to be two-thirds pigment and one-third water. Okay. So there's actually a lot of water that goes into this um, and also the inorganic inks tend to be better actually to use for tattoos because they have things like surfactants um, which are basically chemicals that help reduce the surface tension, kind of going back to what I was talking about Mm. earlier. And they also have preservatives in them to make sure no bacteria can grow. Um, So inorganic pigments are actually the best for tattooing because they have those things um, that organic don't have. Mm. Um, And a lot of people think these are regulated by agencies. Like in the U.S., it would be the FDA. And I think the Australian equivalent of that would be the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Um, but what I found super interesting uh, in the US, the FDA doesn't actually regulate permanent tattoos. Hmm. Um, and to clarify, they don't regulate the pigments, but they will step in if they hear about a specific safety issue. Um, but they do regulate those temporary like water transfer tattoos.
0: <laughs> wow. The ones you give your kids.
3: and s- Yes, exactly. They do regulate those, so I found that super interesting. Um, I guess because they have to come with a label that says they're non-toxic and non-allergenic and all those things, so they do have to go through some approval for that.
0: Wow. Yeah, it seems like it should be the other way around, but yeah, I guess it's still, I mean, that should basically be a regulation for both, I suppose. Yeah.
3: Yeah, Mm. and then I also, I get this question a lot, um, particularly about the inorganic inks, because people know that there are metal in those inks, so things like uh, chromium and cobalt, Mm. Um, if they do actually interfere with mris or magnetic resonance imaging machines and they do actually distort the image because mris are essentially a big magnet um and a lot of people have actually reported uh either like burning or swelling around their tattoos when getting an mri i have not personally experienced that but i know when i was younger i had to have an mri of my head and i know they had me take out you know any jewelry like my earrings um necklace and so i can only imagine like what having metal actually in your body would feel like well wow, that's good information
0: because my, my long term plan is to have all my organs labeled so that one day when i donate my body to science it just helps those medical students out a little bit you know <laughs> i <and, laughs> yeah, think exactly. maybe maybe one of them mislabeled so
1: I, yeah i think i think we've discussed this before <laughs> that i've i've always wanted to get a golden ticket inserted inside me um <laughs> for medical students but that but i captured it before i have an mri because that would hurt like hell would
0: it, would it be it would be connected to a chocolate bar or just...
1: you know i'm dead what do i care
0: yeah. Um, maybe
3: yeah <laughs> that's true
0: sorry gracie go yeah, ahead so
3: then no that that brings us to kind of the next session. So how do you tattoos actually stay in your body? Mm. Um, so tattoos are essentially wounding your skin, which signals an immune response. Um, and so macrophages are kind of the key players in your wound healing. They're basically a type of white blood cell and they gobble up these foreign substances in your body. So they basically detect and destroy anything they deem that's not like a natural part of your body and anything that they think doesn't belong. So the macrophages will attack the tattoo pigment, and essentially gobble it up. And then the tattoo ink stays in the macrophages kind of cell membrane or outer portion. And that is actually what keeps your tattoo ink looking nice in your dermis. And researchers Mm. always wondered, like macrophages only live for a few months to a few years, but they don't live an entire person's lifetime. So how does the tattoo ink stay Mm. there um, from all of those cell membranes? And researchers actually found in a 2018 study, so pretty recent, um, that they actually tattooed a mouse. And the original macrophages kind of gobble up the ink and last for those, you know, their lifetime, so a few months to years. But then, when those macrophages die, they release the pigment again, oh. and then more macrophages come, and so it's like this nice. endless cycle of macrophages dying and new ones coming. Um, and our macrophages may last longer than in mice, but scientists think kind of a similar thing happens. And wouldn't you have loved to have like been on that study or on that yeah. ethics board? Yeah. Of like, I want to know whose job it was to tattoo the mouse. Yeah, what Um, what the tattoo was? What was it? Yes.
0: Yeah. Was it a number?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) I actually, my university didn't have like full access to the images, Uh, but uh, from what I did, uh, a Google image search, it actually looked like there were like green little uh, like bands around the mouse's tail is hmm. what they used. Boring. Boring. yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep oh look gracie we we're, we're almost out of time, so we 're going to have to end it there, but at, at some later stage you 're going to have to tell us about tattoo removal because I think that 's something you know, everyone's everyone 's made a mistake sooner or later, and uh you know things change or you yeah. get, you get older and they change, and it doesn 't look like it used to, um, you have to get it touched up, so thanks so much again, Gracie. great hearing your your nice, clear. You know, explanation of what this is all about. You've encouraged me to just go and go and get inked.
3: Yeah, that's great to hear. Maybe we'll have to have a tattoo part two next time.
0: Sounds good. All right, Gracie, take care over there in Texas. Uh, look out for those giant hammerhead uh, worms. All <laughs> <Thanks. laughs> right, well, folks, we're almost out of time here. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Edith, Chris, KP. Good talking to you, and good yeah, having you in the studio, yeah, buddy. Great
1: to be here. Always it's, great
0: to it's be here. It's been way too long. A big cheerio from us to everyone up in New South Wales. Uh, the numbers mm. today are in the seventies, so pretty, pretty bad. Um, I think vigilance there is required, Absolutely. and I think you know it's it's terrible. We get these we get these wake up calls with regards to the importance of vaccination. But if you're unsure, folks, have a look at the number of people in the hospital at the moment up there that mm. have been vaccinated, and you'll find that number is um, I think it's zero. Damn near it, zero. Well, yeah. <laughs> if, it's, if it was zero yesterday, yeah, it, it may still be zero today. So it's an important vaccines work. Over now to the team from either. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a great Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einsteinagogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.